0: You can turn to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, the passage will be on the screen in just a couple minutes. This morning, we're going to talk about heaven and hell. We're actually going to talk about what Jesus says about heaven and hell. Uh, I've done a little bit of statistical research recently. Uh, I've studied uh, this particular topic, and irregardless of Americans' religious beliefs, in other words, whether you're an agnostic Or a Buddhist or a Christian uh, within the Christian community, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, uh, these statistics pretty much hold true across the board in our culture. 90% of Americans, 9 out of 10 Americans, believe that there is an afterlife. Uh, They believe that there's some existence after your physical body passes away uh, and dies. Of that 90% of folks, 85% of those people believe that there's some kind of reward or punishment in the afterlife or what the Bible would call heaven and hell. And so the vast majority of people who believe in an afterlife believe that basically if you're a good person, that good things will uh, happen to you in the afterlife. And if you're a really bad person, you know, if you're kind of that Adolf Hitler guy, that that bad things will happen to you in the afterlife. There's some kind of of judgment that's rendered. The third statistic is this. 97% of the people that believe in heaven and hell believe that they're going to heaven. Now, that should not surprise you. (laughs) If there is a heaven, if there is an afterlife, if there is something positive, it would only stand to reason that the vast majority of people think they qualify and think that that's where they will spend eternity. Now, if that's true, irregardless of what you believe, okay, if if there is an afterlife and and the vast majority of people uh, are going to get to the positive side of that, 97% of folks are going to get to the positive side of that then there's a really good chance that you're in that 97%, which leads me to ask a question. What on earth are we doing here this morning? Church is completely irrelevant if what Americans believe is true. Americans have said, it doesn't matter what you believe, the vast majority of us are going to a really good place for all of eternity. Well, if that's the case, then I'm wasting your time and I need to apologize to you and I need to tell you to go out and live however you want, try to be a nice person and enjoy life, but you don't need to waste your time with God. You don't need to waste your time with faith. You don't need to waste your time with worship or with studying uh, the Bible. You just need to go and be a relatively good person, and you're going to get in. You know, running a church costs a lot of money. (laughs) We have a pretty hefty budget here at Green Tree Community Church. We don't even own a building, and we still have a pretty good-sized budget. We have have lots of staff members, lots of ministries. And it seems to me that if if what we believe as a society is true, then you guys are wasting your money. I'm wasting my money that I give to Green Tree. It takes a lot of time to put a sermon together. It takes a lot of time to make a worship service happen on Sunday morning. All those people that are investing their time are wasting it. They would be much better spent watching a football game or going to playing golf or doing a nice deed for someone. The facts are, if heaven is for almost everybody and it's irregardless of what we believe, then I am convinced <laughs> that this is a waste of time. However, I have to stop and ask myself one question. What does Jesus think about heaven and hell? Jesus is the one person who claimed in all of history to be God. He's the one person who backed that claim up with his teaching, with his life, with the activity of his life, And when Jesus talks about the afterlife, I think it's relatively important to find out what he says. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that everybody in this room is going to believe the verses I read in just a couple of minutes. But I think it's paramount that you and I both acknowledge the fact that, A, Jesus claimed to be God, and, B, he claimed to have an insight into your eternal destination and mine. So whether we believe it or don't believe it, it is at least worth our time to consider what Jesus said And weigh that in the balance of this question of eternity. So with that in mind, uh, follow along your Bibles or listen as we read. uh, Luke chapter 16, we'll start in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter, about 12 verses. Jesus is teaching and he tells this story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he began to be in torment. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus and like men are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us is fixed a great chasm. Uh, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, send him being Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone should go to them, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, this is a challenging passage of Scripture. This is a difficult teaching that Jesus has given. He acknowledges a place where there is torment and anguish. He introduces us to the idea that it is ongoing, that it cannot be changed. And quite frankly, this is somewhat of a frightening passage of Scripture. But Father, I pray that we would not uh, close up our ears because we don't want to hear something that may feel like bad news to us, but rather that we would long to understand what Jesus is trying to get at here. Why would he tell us this story? What does he want us to know about the truth of heaven and hell? We know, Father, as we study the book of Luke this last year, that the theme verse is that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it certainly fits within that understanding of Jesus that we come to this text. Jesus comes as the seeker and the saver of the lost, not as one who would just want to scare us or cause us to live in fear and doubt and anxiety until that day when we die, but rather that he comes offering hope and life and a promise. So Father, I pray that you would show us, you would help us understand what is in these verses. Father, my words are inconsequential. They carry no weight. Lord, I am sinful. I have fallen short this week of loving you as I should and loving my fellow man. Father, I confess that to you ask that my sin would not stand in the way of what you want each and every one of us to hear this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as I've gone through this passage this week, and I've wrestled with it greatly, um, there's two or three different ways you could approach it. So I'd like to try out two or three different sermons and see which one you think is the best. Would that, anybody got lunch plans? we well, just kidding. Um, what I'm gonna do is, I'm, I'm just gonna give you my observations about this text and it might not be the typical way that that you would preach it, but as I looked at it, I thought, you know, If I'm willing to just kind of make some observations, I think it will become clear what God is trying to say. So that's the way I'm going to approach it this week. I have six observations about this text, and I'm just going to throw them out there for you all to consider. The first observation is I just want you to look with me at the characters uh, that Jesus introduces in this story, verses 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Okay, that's our first character. And here's character number two. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, friends, it it doesn't take anybody, you know, with a whole lot of sense to see that these are two very diametrically different sets of circumstances. You have on the one hand the rich man who lives in dazzling splendor. This is a man who is very, very wealthy, uh, and he's depicted as the ultimate consumer. It says that every day, or literally in the Greek, day after day after day, he sat at his table and he, and he dined on the finest of foods, and he wore the very best clothes that money could possibly get buy. This guy would fit in great in the United States of America today. We are, we are a consumer mentality, and he was the ultimate consumer. He's obviously obsessed with himself. He makes sure that he has the very best, but he cares little or nothing for either God or others because Jesus doesn't mention anybody else in his introduction. He simply tells us about his tone or about his attitude, and it's all about him. You know, we used to say to our kids when they were growing up and and sometimes in their teenage years, not that this would apply to any teenagers in this room, we say, you know, it kind of feels like you think that you're here and the rest of the universe is kind of going around you. You know, you think that, that you're the most important. And that's how this man felt. He was preoccupied with his own comfort. And more than that, he was preoccupied with his comfort in this life. He had no interest or no inkling at all about eternal matters. Or looking at life with an eternal perspective. He had a temporal perspective. He thought only about this world. And he had no mercy for anyone else. This introduction is a scary introduction because it paints a person who is completely obsessed with themselves. I was in the airport in New Orleans on Wednesday morning coming back uh, from a board meeting of an organization. I sit on the on the board. We had our meetings Monday Tuesday. Wednesday morning I'm flying home and I'm sitting in, in the airport and not 20 feet from me, there's a guy talking on the phone. And he's talking, I don't know if he's talking to his wife, I don't know if he's talking to a fellow business person, but he's talking about his experience in New Orleans. And he's explaining the restaurant he ate at the night before. And it was a wonderful restaurant. I can't remember the name, but I I know it by reputation. And uh, he was talking about how great the meal was. He was talking about what a great time he and his business associates had. But in the course of this conversation, he said, you know, my night was almost ruined. Well that kind of got my attention so I'm going to listen a little more carefully to this. He said, "We're in the bar and we and we're waiting to be seated. We have about a half an hour, so we're we're just in there having a drink and waiting to sit down and chatting and this homeless guy wanders in off the street. And somehow he got past the, you know, the maitre d' or whoever was at the front door and he's literally going from table to table and bar stool to bar stool in the bar asking everybody he can see for a dollar." can you believe they'd let somebody in that restaurant like that? And he comes up to me and he says, hey, buddy, could you give me a dollar? And boy, I told him exactly what I thought. You saw, and he said exactly what he thought of the guy, and I won't repeat it to you this morning, but it was not kind. He said, and then I went and found the manager. He said, how could you run a restaurant where you let somebody like this in this building? No mercy. Preoccupied with our own comfort. The ultimate consumer obsessed with nothing that has to do with God or nothing that has to do with others. It's character number one. Character number two is a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus is indeed a a picture of, of a pitiful condition. He's the polar opposite as far as what his circumstances are compared to this rich man. He's sick. It says that Lazarus was laid at the gate of the rich man. In other words, he couldn't walk. He couldn't get around. He was not mobile. He in some way was crippled or so sick that he could not get just simply down the street to this man's house. He was obviously poor. He was helpless. He was in need of mercy. And yet he was finding none because it says that he longed to, to eat uh, what fell from the rich man's table. When, I, when I've read that before, I used to think that the passage said that that's what he ate that he ate the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table, but that's not what it says. It says the crumbs fell off the table, but he wasn't even given those. Lazarus is really a pitiful figure, and the irony of this is his name. This is the only parable in the New Testament where anybody's given a name by Jesus. If you read the parables, it's always a certain woman or a certain man was on a trip or a certain son said to his father, no place else in the parables is anyone given a name other than this man, Lazarus, which is a derivative of the Hebrew Eleazar, which ironically means God has helped. Now, you can imagine the rich man looking at Lazarus and knowing full well what his name was and what it meant, and scoffing to himself. Yeah, look how God has helped that guy. He's obviously placed his faith in the wrong person. Here's Lazarus, irony of all ironies, bearing a name that speaks of faith and yet having the worst circumstances possible and looking like if anybody was ever rejected by God, it was this poor pitiful person. So my first observation is simply these two characters. But my second observation is what I call in verse 22, the great equalizer. Verse 22 says this, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Death overtakes us all, Uh, your riches or your poverty, do not insulate you or protect you from death. And the question is, what becomes of us after death? Maybe you saw the, the movie The Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams played a masterful role in that. of Professor John Keating, who was uh, an English teacher at a boys' prep school. And uh, the first day of class, Professor Keating takes all the young out in the, men out in the hallway in his class, and he has them turn their back on him and face the trophy case at the school that's now in front of them. And the trophy case has picture after picture and trophy after trophy of all the young men who have come before them and all the awards and the prestige that go along with this school. And he begins to ask them, young men, what do you see? What do you see? And they begin to say, well, we see, you know, this great player or that great, uh, uh, that great person who excelled in academics. And they begin to give their answer. He says, no, <laughs> that's not what you see. What do all these men have in common? They're all now food for worms. <laughs> And he used that as a motivation. So young men, what he's saying is, you're not going to live forever. This world is all you have. So carpe diem sees the day and he gives them a temporal mindset. And here we see the two men die, which is nothing unusual, but the question is, what happens? Well, it says, according to Jesus, that faith in God in this life is rewarded by God in eternity because Lazarus, who had all bad things happen to him, it isn't said directly, but obviously implicitly, Lazarus was a man of faith. Lazarus was a man who put his trust in his God, who said, I'm going to live out my name and I'm going to believe that God ultimately will will help me. And when Lazarus dies, he's taken to Abraham's side. Uh, The picture there is one of of Abraham reclining at the feast table. So here we have the rich man who's been feasting all of his life, Lazarus who who has had nothing, and now he is the one who is in heaven, and he is feasting, and it's a picture of God's care. It's it's an answer to the question, will God help this one who is named for God's help? And we find out that the rich man also dies, but we don't hear in verse 22 about his... Uh, eternal consequences. And that leads us to the question, well, if Lazarus is in heaven, where's the rich man? And in verses 23 and 24, we discover another observation in this text, and it's simply that an accounting is demanded. The rich man also died, was buried, and then verse 23 and following, and Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he said, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man's life has continued, but now they've switched positions. And the one who was in torment and lived in anguish in this life is now consoled and is now comforted, is now cared for. And the one who had everything in this life has lost everything to the point that he is in utter ruin. I wanna be clear here that the rich man is not in torment simply because he was rich. It wasn't just that he had money that God judged him. That simply cannot be the case because as Jesus tells the story, there is one other character involved in the story and it's father Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was flat out loaded. Abraham had tons and tons of earthly possessions. Abraham was a very, very wealthy man by anybody's standards. And if you're simply judged because you have money, then Abraham would not be in this place of honor. But in fact, God has called the rich man to account. You see, God also called Lazarus to account. He said, Lazarus, answer for yourself. And Lazarus says, God, I believe in you. I trust in you. I have faith that you will care for me. I believe that you're who you say you are. Even though my circumstances look bleak, and even though they they look pretty bad right now, I'm trusting in you to be the one who provides for me and God did just that but he also allows the rich man to reject him. You see the rich man by by living for himself was basically saying to God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to be involved with you. I don't want to be in your presence. I want to live for myself and God gave that man what he wanted. He had no desire to be in a relationship with God. He loved only himself and he used his freedom to ignore what he could have had in a relationship with God, but he didn't take into account what that really meant. Because saying in this life, you know, I don't wanna have anything to do with God doesn't necessarily hurt you all that bad right here and now. The author of Proverbs says very clearly, God says the rain on the just as well as on the unjust. Jesus says very clearly in his teaching that that God is is generally gracious to everyone in this life. You're not having to call into account for what you believe or don't believe yet. <laughs> And so you can go through this life and you can be pretty successful and you can say, God, I don't have anything to do with you. And God says, okay. And yet he doesn't take his hand away from you. He doesn't take his presence completely away from you. You still live and breathe and can earn a living and have a family and enjoy many of the things in this world that others enjoy. But there comes a moment. There comes a day when you stand before God and God says, what did you ask for in this lifetime? And your answer is, I asked that I would have nothing to do with you and God says, So be it. But now I'm removing my presence completely. And now you're going to experience something that you never experienced in your life for all of eternity that is so terrible and so awful. I'm giving you what you asked for. And that's why Jesus talks about this as a place of agony because it's a place where you are completely alone cut off from the God of the universe and it feels as if the flames are lapping all around you and your tongue is sticking to the roof of your mouth because for the first time but now forever you see that you're all alone. Jesus is teaching us here that life is not temporal but it's eternal but Jesus is also teaching that the condition of the afterlife is potentially glorious or ruinous. So what do we do? How do we apply that teaching? Well, I think that begins to come. in my fourth observation in that, this text, which I'm simply saying, is the time is now. Look at verses 25 and 26. The rich man is asked that his tongue be cooled by just a drop of water, but Abraham says, "Child." And I and I love that. It, Abraham isn't vindictive. <laughs> he isn't condescending. He isn't condemning. He still calls him child. But now he's saying, "Child," in the uh, just like a parent says. Now you got to live with the choices that you have made. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Everlasting destination, your everlasting destination, my everlasting destination is determined in this life. The choices that we make to put our faith in Christ or the choice we make to reject him may be made today but will last forever. The rich man had no interest in God or in his fellow man, and God simply confirms that in the next life. Lazarus lived in faith even when he was destitute, even when, even when things looked terrible. Lazarus put his faith in God and God brought his experience full circle. Their eternal destination, our eternal destination is fixed upon death and it will not change. Both heaven and hell are forever. The metaphor that's used in the story is is, uh, Abraham saying there's a great chasm. There's, you know, think about the Grand Canyon. You've ever stood at the Grand Canyon. We had the privilege of doing that a few years ago. Magnificent. But I wouldn't think that I could get from one side to the other. (laughs) And Abraham makes that point. He says, there's no way you can cross over. There's no way, even if I wanted to send Lazarus, I couldn't do it. There's literally impossible. Why? Because God has determined that once death comes, the choices that we make, we are now held accountable. And in a sense, is not is not that, isn't that, uh, isn't that the right way to parent your kids? (laughs) Don't you want your children to understand that that decisions they make carry consequences? You know, if you're a teenager, you've probably heard your mom or dad say that. You know, the choices you make, you're you're gonna have to live with those choices. And I wanna help you learn now to make good choices. And if you don't, uh, there are consequences involved. And I think, you know, that in many ways, our culture doesn't live that way anymore. In many ways, we, we, even as parents, sometimes we make the mistake, and I believe it's truly a terrible mistake, of insulating our children from the repercussions of the choices they make instead of allowing them to learn through them. Uh, my wife works at Kirkwood High School, and I got this email about a school who put this on their recording when you called in to their school. It speaks to this idea of trying to, to, uh, to insulate our kids from uh, the choices that they make. It says, hello, you have reached the automated answering service. At the school, in order to assist you in connecting you with the right staff member, please listen to all the options and make a selection. By the way, uh, teachers and administrators, just send me an email and I'll forward this to you this week. I've already had about 10 requests after the first service. To lie about why your child is absent, press 1. To make an excuse for why your child did not do his work, press 2. To complain about what we do, press 3. <laughs> to swear at staff members, press 4. To ask why you didn't get information that was already enclosed in your newsletter and several flyers mailed to you, press 5. If you want us to raise your child, press (laughs) 6. To request another teacher for the third time this semester, press 7. To complain about bus transportation, press 8. To complain about school lunches, press 9. If you realize this, and if you realize that in the real world, your child must... Uh, be held accountable and responsible for his or her own own behavior, classwork, homework, and that it's not the teacher's fault for your child's lack of effort, hang up and have a nice day. (laughs) I think the parent who accommodates their child's bad choices is doing their child no favor. Because someday those children are going to have to face the real world. (laughs) And they're going to have a boss that says, you're late, too bad, you're fired. (laughs) And they're going to say, but wait, everybody's always taking care of me. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. You have to live with your choices. We're finding that out in our economy right now, aren't we? Lots of bad choices have been made, and a lot of us are going to pay a lot for a long, long time. And so I don't believe God is being heavy-handed. I don't believe God is being antagonistic, and he certainly is not being unfair. When he warns us of the fact that the decisions we make about our relationship with him, will last for eternity. And now is the time to choose. And he calls us to choose wisely. And we find out not only from this man's uh, position in Hades, but we also find out from his attitude, my fifth observation, which is the true condition of his heart. Look at verses 27 and 28. So, uh, so the man responds to Abraham and he says, then I beg you, Father, send him. He's talking about Lazarus. Send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. Now you might read that and go, you know, at least he's looking out for his brothers. But I see something radically different in this answer. I see this man's heart revealed for what it is. He still has no regard for Lazarus. Lazarus, the man who sat by his gate day after day, just needing some crumbs from his table, and the man who he would not lift one finger to help, now he wants to send him on an errand. Now he wants him to take care of his problem for him. And he reveals the fact that he is still obsessed with himself and he still wants others to serve his purposes. There's no confession of sin here. Don't you find it just a tad bit odd that this man doesn't look into heaven and see Lazarus and say, Lazarus, I I know I'm paying for what I did, but I need to ask your forgiveness because I basically starved you to death. I basically ignored your sickness. I basically, I let the dogs take better care of you than I would. And I had all the resources in the world at my disposal. Could you find it in your heart to forgive me? No, none of that. Abraham, send. Lazarus, on my mission. The true nature of the fact that he's still consumed with his own agenda is revealed. And Abraham gives a stark answer. My last observation is that Abraham talks about all that is necessary for us to decide, verses 29 through 31. But Abraham said, they have Moses And the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham says they have, they have all that's necessary. They have Moses and the prophets. Well, what did Moses and the prophets teach? We're not gonna go into a long discourse here. Our time's running short, but Jesus summed it all up, right? He had a lawyer come to him one day and said, hey, Jesus, if you could take all that's said in the law and of Moses and the prophets, how could you boil it down to one sentence? And Jesus says, oh, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, period. The rich man had heeded that warning and had thought along those lines, maybe the outcome would have been different. But if you're like me, you sit here and you say, okay, that's good, but, it, but it's also bad because <laughs> I haven't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> I certainly haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I certainly haven't done the things that I should have done this week to care for other people. So I know what, what the law and the prophets are saying, but is there anything else that goes along with it? And the answer to that is yes. Because <laughs> what do the law and the prophets point to? They point to the Messiah. You remember what Jesus said to the guy who said, how do I get eternal life? And he said, love God by your heart, soul, mind, your neighbors, yourself. And the guy said, I did all that. And Jesus said, you are still lacking one thing. Just sell all this earthly stuff. Just get rid of it and come and follow me. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's how you get to the Father. Luke 19.10, the, the theme verse of this passage, which I know you're sick of me saying every Sunday, but, it, but it's true. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, the law and the prophets point to Jesus. And there's no other message that's needed, nor is there any other messenger who will convince. I talk to people from time to time and say, you know, if Jesus would just show up and talk to me for five minutes, wouldn't that be great? You know, I have trouble believing sometimes and I, and he lived 2000 years ago and the world's changed so much and I, I wanna believe the Bible, but you know, if Jesus just showed up, if I could just have five minutes of his time, I think I'd believe and everything would be okay. And I believe that if a man cannot humble himself before God or a woman humble themselves before God and see the gift of Jesus and be humane to the Lazarus who's sitting at our doorstep, then the appearance of one raised from the dead will bring no conviction. Friends, if Jesus sat down and talked to you for five minutes, he wouldn't tell you anything different that's already written in this book. In fact, he's given you much more than five minutes worth of material. Try to read the Bible from cover to cover one time and see how long it it takes you. (laughs) There's a whole lot more than just five minutes with Jesus. There's all that is necessary. So what do we do with these observations? What do we do with a text that talks about heaven and talks about hell in ways that maybe make us feel a little bit uncomfortable? I'm going to give you three very brief and very quick applications. The first one is this. I think you and I need to live with an eternal perspective. And I think we're getting the chance to do that in America now. You know, we sing all we need is Jesus while we watch our portfolios disappear. Is it really true? Is that all you need is Jesus? (laughs) My friend Joe Trad called me the other day and said, our toaster broke at the house, and I had to go to the hardware store and buy a new toaster, and, I, and they were giving away free banks. <laughs> Let's think about it a little bit. If you're under about 25, ask your mom and dad. They'll explain that to you later. <laughs> we're going to to find out right now, brothers and sisters who call ourselves Christians, if we really do mean that Jesus is enough. Well, if Jesus is enough, I think that will cause us to live with an eternal perspective and acknowledge that there is life after death and that we can have an impact in this life to that decision. Which leads to my second application is we need to put our faith in Christ Jesus. Parents can't do it for me. My friends can't believe for me. Going to church doesn't make me a Christian. But putting my faith in the Messiah, the one to whom the prophets and the law spoke, because heaven and hell are very real and they both last forever. And today, as the psalmist says, today is the day of salvation. Today, God is laying this all out before you through this teaching of Jesus. And he's saying, put your faith in me. Don't live for yourself, but live for me. Trust in me and I'll bring you home. And my third application is this. For those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, for those of us who are sitting here this morning and say, you know, I am a Christian. I do, I do believe in God we need to be compelled to share this message of grace with others. There are lots of people walking around out there in in my sphere of influence who don't know Jesus. Uh, We say in our mission statement that we want to make disciples. That's one of the three things that we talk about at Green Tree. Making disciples begins with sharing sharing with people the good news of Jesus, that he has come, that he has offered life, and that they too can put their faith in him. In some respects, this is a scary story. Talks about hell, which is not a very pleasant thing. But in other respects, it is God's gracious message to us, calling us to repent, to put our faith in Christ. And each one of us need to do that personally. And then, as disciples of Jesus, we need to tell other people that good news. Will you pray with me?